again, everybody, and welcome to today's Scope of Practice podcast, the product of the Connecticut Certification Board. As we continue on with our fourth season of addressing anything and everything of interest to professionals in the substance use disorder prevention, treatment, and recovery industry. The reason that group therapy is offered in SUD treatment programs are many, but the most obvious being cost effectiveness, which Irvin Yalom referred to as the economy of scale, to the recapitulation of the family group for participants, in effect seeing their responses and behaviors toward others as a mirror of their functioning in the family system. It is often stated that SUDs are disorders of loneliness and disconnection, while recovery is about reconnection and relationships. Yet these factors that make group therapy so valuable lies a question. Are we, in this industry, delivering group therapy properly and effectively? Given my graduate training in group work at the UConn School of Social Work and years of facilitating group therapy under supervision, my observation tells me that the answer is a resounding no. The blame for this problem lies in the history and training related to the field. For many years, being a field that relies so much on oral tradition, we falsely considered 12-step sessions to be group therapy. This ignorance comes from a lack of appropriate training in the basics of group therapy, which not only creates ineffective groups, but can also make professionals uncomfortable with the idea of facilitating group therapy. It is truly a different set of skills in offering individual treatment. Group therapy is incredibly effective as it also serves as a laboratory for participants to have the opportunity to better understand their own attitudes about substance use and their defenses against giving up or reducing substance use by confronting similar attitudes and defenses in others. In short, effective group therapy helps participants function better outside of the treatment environment. Our guest today is an expert in the provision of group therapy and educating professionals to do the same. Andrew Bort is the co-founder of the Institute for Advancement of Group Therapy, an organization that addresses shortcomings in current group therapy models to allow patients to get more from their time in group sessions, impacting more patients effectively while improving engagement and outcomes. Andrew has extensive knowledge of educational pedagogy and practice. He has served as a teacher in the public and private schools, teaching students from pre-K to the university level. After receiving his MED from the University of Illinois, Andrew became a certified Disney trainer through the Walt Disney Company, training teachers to deliver more effective effective instruction to their students through proven educational practice. He went on to lead training and development before advancing as a vice principal, campus director, curriculum designer, and head of academics for a prestigious private school in Shanghai. One commonality he found across all roles was the importance effective group group delivery had on the learning result of class participants of any age and position. From children to executive business people, how information is delivered has a significant impact on whether or not and to what level participants achieve learning objectives. I love any opportunity to talk about making group therapy better for the professional and the participant, so I offer a warm welcome to Andrew for joining us today. Andrew, good to see you. Good to see you too. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, when I was following some of your stuff on uh, LinkedIn and seeing um, just the mention of group and uh, from talking with your partner at the Institute for uh, Advancement of Group Therapy, it, uh, this is stuff that I find incredibly important and often overlooked. People get thrust in the group without really knowing how to do it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've heard feedback from clinicians, from clinical supervisors, from program directors that 
people are just thrust into it many times. And there's so much inconsistency in the licensing programs across the country that group dynamics is something that is very rarely covered. And facilitation is a skill. I mean, one of my favorite quotes is from Bill Miller. He says, you know, if if cooks are given two, uh, if the two different cooks are getting this, uh, given the same ingredients, how different will their meals be? And I think that this is such an important question because what you do with the material can make all the difference in the world for your patients, right? And so my first experience with groups, group therapy was a pa- was as a patient and myself having ADHD, you know, it was the traditional round robin style where, how are you doing today? How are you doing today? You know, it, there was probably 20, 30 minutes before it was going to get to me as I was towards the end of the line. My knees were bouncing. I certainly wasn't paying attention to what was going on, what anybody was talking about. I was just imagining all the ways I could escape the situation, you know, serpentine through the room, shoulder roll out the window. You know, it just, it, it it's not effective. And when you think about the diversity that exists within groups, we really need to look at educational best practices of how people acquire, retain, and their ability to recall information and skill if we really want to help the greatest amount of people in treatment be successful once they leave. And that kind of leads into my first you know, question as, as we look at things. And I want to clarify some terms just for everybody because you and I had spoke uh, previously, and we're going to be using the term engagement a lot today. Um, but can we talk about what engagement means in t- for today's purposes and in what we're going to be talking about? Sure. And I'm very glad you asked this because when I am talking to clinicians, especially ones who are really heavily involved in the processing and the insight tor- type of therapy, uh, this is an important thing to to clarify, okay, so we have engagement in going to therapy, you know, the willingness to go, the willingness to be vulnerable and to open up. And then we have engagement while in therapy, okay? This is paying attention. When we observe groups, and my, myself and my partner at the Institute, across the country, it doesn't matter if it's $17,000 a month resort or a Medicaid clinic, we see the same things consistently. And I'm talking about in-person models, virtual models, hybrid models. We observe patients who are zoning out. And we see this because when the clinician does cold call on them every once in a while, maybe one time per session, they say, I'm sorry, what? What that tells you is they were not listening. You see them staring off into space. In virtual or hybrid models, you see them reading books on their phone, walking around the backyard, not even there. In in-person models, you see them, you know, bouncing their legs, staring off into space, sometimes on their phone as well. It's the same reason that commercials raise the volume when they go to commercial. If you're not paying attention to something, you are not progressing, you're not processing, you're not growing. And while it is difficult to pinpoint the exact number of times with an individual or how often they will zone out because there are so many factors involved, for example, Mm -hmm. you would be much more likely to listen for an extended period to a seminar that you paid for, delivered by someone that you respect, right? But research uh, suggests that people tend to lose focus when they're involved in some sort of didactic instruction where they are not talking between 50 and 70% of the time. Okay, so whether they're motivated to listen or not, 
they will generally by default start to zone out. And one thing that we actually ask in our training all the time is, you know, how often have you planned to pick something up after work and found yourself pulling into your driveway because you got lost in thought? So that's the brain's automatic response. It's called uh, an unconscious automated process, finding that default default pathway. And the reason it happens is, according to neuroscience, you know, the brain makes up 20% of the body's mass, 2% of the body's mass, excuse me, but makes up 20, but uses 20% of its energy. And so the brain looks to limit uh, conscious thought whenever possible, the originating from the prefrontal cortex, because that is the most energy intensive form of thought. And so it's important to understand that you need to actively try to engage your patients in group therapy. You, you have to put a plan in place. Like we always say, hope is not a strategy. They might find what patient A says interesting, mm -hmm. but how? Wh what can we do to take an extra step to make sure that they're paying attention whether they find it interesting or not? And that really is important because time is money in therapy. You know, it, it's, you know, we think about, the difficulty of negotiating with payers and making sure that what we're doing is covered. And when we observe, we see so much zoning out with this round robin style of facilitation. And another thing is contrary to pop popular belief, even in professional circles, the human brain has a very limited capacity to process information and trying to consistently focus on two separate things at a time just does not work. Some people will tell you, oh, I can multitask fine. But if you're listening to classical music by while reading a book, you really can't do both. I mean, you, you might be very effective at switching back and forth relatively quickly, but the human brain just simply doesn't have the capacity to multitask. You're just consciously focusing on one thing and switching back and forth. But when we come to our patients in group therapy, most of which are court mandated, are there because, you know, they're afraid of losing their spouse or what have you, many other reasons, they're not in the state of mind to really be able to focus on what that person is doing, then go back to their daydream and back and forth and back and forth. And really, they're just wasting time. Anything that is done in a group that is not designed to help that patient once they leave is a waste of time. That's one of my favorite sayings. And when I heard uh, your partner, Nick, say that, uh, it, it was something that just hit me uh, with full force. Um, so it really is interesting because when we talk about engagement, there is a neuroscientific base for keeping people engaged and making sure that doing everything you can to keep them active in the moment. Uh, in the credentialing world, we talk about competency being determined by verification of knowledge, skill, and ability. In terms of working with groups, um, what differentiates knowledge from skill and each from application or opportunity? Okay, sure. So if we're talking about, let me start with a patient first, and then we're okay. going to bring it to the, the clinician in groups, if that's all right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when it comes to a patient, and we'll use it in the context of group therapy, uh, let's take a patient who is deathly afraid of water. My wife, Jessica, I actually use her as an example in my training. Uh, she almost drowned when she was seven. She is deathly afraid of water, deathly afraid. She does not know how to swim. 
I have I, me personally with her. I've gotten her in the pool a couple times, but she hangs on me like a barnacle and screams. And it's it's not even fun. And I've taught many of my nieces. I've taught my daughter to swim. Like I, I believe I'm pretty good at that. Not her. If she really wants to swim, you know, she's going to have to go see a therapist because there are she has some traumatic experience with the water. And, you know, the therapist will have to help her get over that. But when we actually see what therapy does currently, here's here's what we've noticed. The therapist is very, very good. I mean, they've got thousands of hours of training in helping a person like my wife unravel those cognitive distortions around water, helping her deal with that trauma, you know, lessening the emotional response. I mean, and that is fantastic. That's incredibly important. But that's not all it takes to get Jessica swimming, right? If if she were to all of a sudden develop this confidence and then go jump in the deep end of the pool, she would drown. So let's go to the next step. Again, we're talking about knowledge and skill. Mm-hmm. So the therapist can write on the board the bullet points of swimming. You know, oh, it involves kicking your feet, paddling your arms. Occasionally, you have to hold your breath. Wonderful. But if Jessica jumps in the pool now with that renewed set of confidence and this knowledge of swimming, she still does not have the skill and she is going to drown. And that's what we see, especially in SUD treatment, is that clinicians are very skilled in points one and two. Mm-hmm. But that third that third step, deliberate practice of these recovery capital coping skills, knowing that breaking down goals is important is a great first step, but you need to know how to do it if you're going to implement it in your life. The same goes with restructuring negative thoughts, any of the other, you know, CBT, REBT, DBT skills Mm -hmm. that we are trying to help patients obtain before they leave treatment. They need to actually practice them. And as far as I'm aware, and I've talked to, you know, professors from Hazelden Betty Ford Graduate School who delivers the group therapy uh, module to, you know, clinicians all over the country, it's there's there's no consistency in this area. And when it comes to knowledge and skill for delivering to groups, group dynamics, facilitation, that's a skill in itself. I mean, even the therapeutic alliance, which we know is one of the number one predetermining factors of how well a patient will do, I believe it, it accounts to, in many studies, up to 30% of the outcome. Even within the therapeutic alliance, there are micro skills, you know, uh, elicitation questions, affirmative statements, you know, building that relationship, assertive communication. Those are skills within building the therapeutic alliance. Outside of that, once you're dealing with groups, you need to be able to differentiate to find out where patients are being able to pair them appropriately. I mean, you got people who are in treatment for the seventh time with people who were in treatment for the first time. How do you pair them up to maximize the time that you're doing if you're pairing them up at all? And I'm sure we're going to get to that. You know, most of the time, it's the still the round robin. Yep. Even if you look at uh, the YouTube examples, and I say this all the time, but if you're going to put something on YouTube as an example of what we do, you have to assume common sense would say that you're putting the best you've got. Mm-hmm. 
if the best we've got after 50 years of delivery of group therapy is still, how are you? How are you? How are you? How are you? And it's 45 minutes, a, an average of two minutes of talking time per patient an hour, we have to do better. Yeah. And that's what that's what the Institute of the, for the Advancement of Group Therapy is here to do. We're here to elevate, re revolutionize. We're here to do better. And we're going to jump into some of that a little bit later, too. But those are good points. I may know how to do something, but if I, unless I practiced it, um, I does I probably can't do it well. Learning, I can read a book about something, but it doesn't mean I can take the skills from that unless I practice them. And it goes that way in, in sports and in, in anything. If I dribble a basketball a certain way, uh, I've got to learn to do it the right way. Uh, and it takes hours and hours when you talk to these experts in their field. Um, many group opportunities for participants can be very specific uh, and very homogeneous. We pick people for this group based on certain things and that there's little diversity between members of the group. Uh, as important as that can be for targeted issues and targeted populations. I'd like to talk a bit more about diverse groups. Um, mm -hmm. Beyond the things that are visible, like skin color, age, and gender, what are other factors of diversity that we have to take into consideration? That's a fantastic question. Okay. So first off, I do applaud the massive strides uh, towards inclusivity that the field has seen mm -hmm. of late. I mean, we have LGBTQ plus groups, veterans groups, you know, et cetera. But within these groups, there's still diversity. In fact, I've, I've talked to, you know, many, you know, my minority populations who, who think the idea of just creating a group for this skin color or this type of uh, gender or this, you know, uh, occupation, that's a, that's a good step, but it, it ignores the fact that there are, those populations are not homogeneous themselves, right? Within those groups, you have different education levels. You have different times in treatment. You have different learning preferences or styles. You have cultural backgrounds and experiences, personality types. Some of them might be extrovert, introvert, you know, individuals with social phobias. They All of those things need to be taken into consideration. And that's why we are so proud at the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy is that all of our research, because what we train on is evidence-based, it all comes from a mixed background sample. Mm -hmm. It comes from public education. It comes from the university level. It comes from these areas where it is not just a bunch of white people who were in the sample, right? The whole reason that these things were established in the first place was to help everybody move along so we could be more inclusive so mm -hmm. we could differentiate more to meet the needs of different people and so within these targeted groups that you said yes these skills that we teach on facilitation the collaborative learning the small group exercises the the actual deliberate practice that connect to what patients will be doing once they leave treatment, whether it's a job interview or communicating a difficult conversation to a spouse or loved one who still uses, we're going to practice so many times in so many different ways that they're actually going to not only be confident once they leave to have that conversation, but have had the practice to deliver it, including having patients respond poorly. It's in very important that sometimes patients are pushed outside of their comfort zone mm -hmm. in the, the safety of the treatment space because the world, you never know, 
right? It's a, it's a giant question mark. If you think about they're going to war outside, treatment should be boot camp. It should be supportive. It should also challenge. And I think that that's important um, when you look at at the big picture and the process of what's happening in the group that it's much more effective when somebody learns from another group member or hears something, a correction uh, of an assumption from another group member than a person. And we, I don't think we encourage that enough because for many group therapists, uh, it's uncomfortable to have some sort of conflict in a safe place. Um, you know, they're not talking about have, throwing punches at each other, but managing it and letting the conflict exist and not resolving it because it, it doesn't fall on us in the real world to resolve that conflict for two people. You're absolutely right, but it's completely understandable that clinicians don't feel comfortable mm -hmm. not only handling conflict within groups, but facilitating to groups in general. Think about your own experience. I mean, most of the time what I hear is, well, my group training was I was sent to shadow someone else who was never trained in facilitation. So all I saw them do was go one at a time, write their group notes, and the, the process continues. It's been going on this way for 50 years. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's the best way. Think about what else has changed in the last 50 years. Can you imagine if we lived like it 50 years ago? Group therapy is one of the only places that I recognize, and I'm, I'm be very happy if your listeners can point out to me anymore, that is literally the same as it was back then. We need to We need to change the way we're doing this. And a, a colleague of maybe both of ours, Dr. Bob Lynn, has always talked about uh, our outcomes and the difficulties we've had with outcomes in treatment. And he says, since 1976, we haven't had a significant change in outcomes overall in treatment. But when you look at your telephone from 1976 up to now, it's had hundreds of changes uh, to having a computer, a supercomputer in your hands to having the court. So it does. It makes a lot of sense. It's it's. It is technology that has to be passed on. Uh, supervision that focuses on the work of a group therapist is absolutely key to learning. I can speak from my own experience as a student. And I got to say, as a social work student, I thought I knew it all. I learned quickly that I knew nothing. <laughs> but the supervision I received, and to this day, I remember it clearly because I got my ass kicked daily. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. Peter, if you're listening, uh, I don't hold the grudge anymore. <laughs> but what do you see as the most effective task of the supervisor? Okay, well, as someone who has been in supervision, I'm close, you know, ob observations, feedback, close to 16 years, many different levels and organizations, Fortune 100 companies, executive private schools. And now I'm, you know, delivering, I'm doing observations and feedback for clinicians in behavioral mm -hmm. health. I would say... We need to take a step back. First, there needs to be a, a, an, a whole alignment by the organization itself. This can't be one of those things that you just uh, pass off to your staff. Even middle management, let's say a clinical director, you know, at a organization that has multiple facilities. This there needs to be organizational buy-in from the top. If something, if you're trying to drive your team towards a common mission everyone needs to be bought in, okay? Mm -hmm. And so that is an alignment in that mission that you need to see the CEO and the clinical director and the clinician all striving towards the same goal. Um, so for me, 
that's helping pe- uh, people heal and find lasting recovery. But I, I agree, or I would say that that is a very generic answer. So let me break it that bit. That let me break that down a bit more. Um, and if it's okay with you, I'll, I will get a little bit personal here. Sure. Okay. So for me, like I got into education originally because I had a very traumatic childhood. At home, yes. I mean, my if we look at the ACE scores as they currently are, I'm I'm a four slash five on that scale. But I was bullied at school not only by my peers but also by my teachers. I was a very poor reader. I I was overweight. I was a poor reader. I mild dyslexia, ADHD. You know, diagnosed all these things. I, I was not the student that you'd want to have. I was a challenge, if mm-hmm. if you will. Um, I decided to get into education so I could help kids not have that same experience, right? And what what I what I found out as I got into education is that if we don't help the parents, the teachers can only do so much. And so if if we can bring the best practices to help more people heal so they're not going into treatment five, six, seven times. We get them those practice opportunities in the first or second time so they're actually ready when they leave. They don't give us these generic answers like, oh, this time is going to be successful because they treated me nice and because I liked the food and I, I'd feel ready. What makes you feel ready? Mm, I don't know. Well, that's a problem. We want to help we want to help patients be able to answer that question. And for anyone who follows follows my posts, you know that I can say, hey, you can test the validity of your program by going to ask the clinician these three questions. What do you want your patients to be able to do by the end of this session? How will you know if they've done that? That's the measurement piece. And what does any of this have to do with recovery? Just in the last three months, I have seen patients talk about whether they like Chevy or Ford for over 25 minutes. I've seen a therapist show a movie, Kill Bill, for 45 minutes. I have seen all these things that I'm sure your listeners are saying, that would never happen at my center, but they don't observe, so they really don't know. I'm sure these things are happening, things like this. And so, yeah, it is incredibly important that we really can align in terms of outcomes tracking, building those measurements in, because those three questions are not only important for the or for the clinician to answer, because if they can, you're going to have a successful session. But you need to a- ask those questions again to the patients once they're finished. If the patients can answer those questions, modified, of course, you know, what did you get out of that? Why do you think this is going to help you once you leave treatment? If the patients can answer that, that's a successful program. So far, we have not audited a single facility that patient and clinician answers were in sync consistently. And so that's very important. Okay, so the first one is alignment. The second one, I'm sorry, I'm getting back to your question. I go off in tangent sometimes. (laughs) Second one is outcomes tracking. Um, And the, the... the third one, and it's very, very important, is for the supervisor, it means frequent observations and honest feedback within the zone of proximal development. Okay, and what is the zone of proximal development? So many supervisors don't have any formal training in delivering feedback. I didn't either as a manager or as a, um, a, a advisor, uh, supervisory role for my first couple years. 
until Disney trained me. And I will always say working for Disney was one of the best things that ever happened to me. It was challenging. They, they really focused on training a lot, but boy, did I, did I learn, you know what I mean? And so Mm -hmm. that's super important. And, uh, frequent observations, uh, delivering feedback in an appropriate way. The zone of proximal development is I plus one, what I can do now plus a little bit more. And so when I observe a clinician, for example, I might see, oh my goodness, all of these things can be improved in terms of facilitation. But for the next time you deliver that I watch you, I just want you to work on this one. I don't even tell them most. You know what I mean? The ones that I that I really focus on the most are probably figuring out ways to increase that patient talk time. You know, I, I use this example a lot, but for your new listeners, if you think about a uh, a typical skills based CBT, DBT, REBT, or a psychoeducational mm-hmm. lesson, the clinician might start the session by reading off a a topic, right? And how will they do this? They could read it straight for the from the curriculum, which might have very complicated academic language that won't resonate with people who have a low education level or maybe a different cultural background. Who you know, they're they're just they've never learned about that topic before. They might pose the question to a group, in which case one person might answer, everybody else stays silent. Or they could say, hey, talk to the person next to you, come up with a definition of this or an idea about this that you both agree with. You have two minutes, then we're going to bring it back to the group. In that way of delivery, everybody, including the introverts, has a chance to talk to one person while no one else is watching them. You Mm -hmm. can address that issue with personality types, and they can then digest the information. So when it's brought back to whole group, people are more ready to share. You don't have those long bouts of silence where you're waiting for someone to chime in, right? Everyone's had a chance to talk about it already. And the reason why we really emphasize patient talk time is it is incredibly common for clinicians to overestimate how much their patients are talking in therapy. And when we observe, I use a stopwatch every time. I'm telling you 50 seconds per patient to two minutes in an hour is incredibly common. Some patients talk for 15 seconds, some for two minutes, but we have so much research that says patient positive change talk is a, a huge impacting factor in outcomes. And I will send that to you to put in the meeting notes in oh, case please. people want to see it. Yeah. I mean, I know for me, <clears throat> when I was learning, um, I got to be pretty good at group. I long way to go, but I, from learning, it was the observation that did it. And I had observation in a unique way. My supervisor and I did group together. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to, to uh, comment on anything related to the content of the group. I was strictly there to observe, comment, and get feedback from clients about the process. I notice you're shuffling in your seat a little bit when when Jane says that. What's that about? Do you know? And um, or he could set situations up where I would be challenged. Um, that he ultimately, if he had to bail me out, would, but he never did because he just let me twist in the wind. And I think I learned from that because we get together the next day and talk about not the clients, but what I learned. What did I do wrong? And if I did something wrong, he wouldn't tell me why it was wrong. I had to figure it out for myself. And then we talk more about, and I, and I, I'm telling you, it kicked my butt. It brought me to tears, but it taught me so much that I would look forward to go in and do group 
because it was a chance to do something I really enjoyed and felt confident in. So that observation built confidence. Yeah. For his kid, tearing it down and then building it up. But it was fantastic. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Look, it's uncomfortable in the beginning. I thought I was a fantastic facilitator. I thought, oh, I'm so great. My stories are funny. Everybody's laughing. My, My scores are average. They're fine. You know, everything's good. Well, when I really dug down into the measurement and the data, oh, it turns out I was letting people down. Yep. I wasn't as great as I thought I was. It wasn't fun at first. Getting feedback is is difficult to hear at times. But you know what? It helped me. It made me better. And it made me confident to deliver feedback to others. Because even if they don't like it in that moment, you know, if we, again, if we deliver it in, look, just try to fix this one thing next time, right? Mm-hmm. Just a little tweak and see the result. The facilitator learns it for themselves. And we we know this from neuroscience too, through elicitation, questions are much better than just telling someone the answer. Getting them to make that connection on their own is effective in group therapy. It's effective in learning. It's also effective in feedback for, you know, whoever's being supervised. These are universal truths in how human beings learn and progress. The, the greatest compliment I ever got uh, from group work, it was when my last group, when I was leaving to come to this administrative job many, many years ago, and one of the clients pulled me aside. He was an older, gruff gentleman. And he said, Jeff, I got to tell you, group sucks less when you do it. And I wore that like a, a badge of honor because that was a huge compliment from this person. And that means he got something out of it. You are absolutely correct. And the problem is, is that group doesn't need to suck at all. It doesn't need to suck for the clinician, and it certainly doesn't need to suck for the patient. It can be a wonderful growth opportunity. And even though, look, I acknowledge that there are times I've heard some terrible things when I'm observing groups, terrible things. And, you know, for those times of process affordance, Absolutely. You know, you, the clinician needs to do whatever it, whatever they feel is necessary to support that patient. But that's not most of the time. Most of the time in group, you can make learning fun. You can make deliberate practice opportunities so people aren't just reading a card or working on a worksheet by themselves. They could do that at home. Utilize all those diverse people in the room to help establish real-life practice opportunities because when they go outside, they're going to deal with a bunch of random people. They're going to deal with people they know and a bunch of random people too. And the the best way to set up practice opportunities, I mean, think about playing it through. Do you want to just play one scenario through with a card or do you want to set up an activity where you have to go up to you know seven or eight different people, they throw a scenario at you and you have to on the spot play it through? What is really going to help you once you leave? A worksheet or a real life, oh my goodness, here is an on-the-spot situation. I need to play this through. What is really going to help build that skill? Think typing on a keyboard. Think swimming. Think climbing a mountain. As you said, you know, you can read all the books you want on climbing a mountain, but if you actually want to get good at it, you need to get on the mountain. So yeah. you, we need to give patients the opportunity to practice these skills. You don't start skiing on a black diamond trail. You go to the bunny hill the first time. Exactly. Because that's That's where you start. Yeah. 
zone of proximal development, right? Yep. I plus one. The same thing applies to the clinician who's improving their craft in delivering group therapy. Same thing applies to the patient. Same thing applies to your two-year-old. Okay, this is how humans learn. It doesn't change. Neuroplasticity exists throughout the entire life. Uh, you know, uh, elderly people, my grandpa, he learned to do new skills all the time, right? As he was getting older in age. Um, my my wife's mom right now, she is learning English for the first time. Her brain is changing. You you never stop. And I think if we focus more on the positive of, hey, let's look at how, what we know about how humans learn. Let's utilize what we know about this to really help our patients in therapy. I mean, in neuroscience, the, the key phrase is fire it to wire it. That means the more repetition you get, the more effective you will be in learning that, that piece of information or that skill. Well, in recovery, it's fire it to rewire it. Right. Absolutely. We know that drug use, alcohol use, we know that those things change the brain. But so does eating broccoli for a week or, you know, uh, exercising for a month. Everything you do will change the brain. You can change it again. Right. We want to we want to get patients who are quick to anger to not have to stop and think about what should I do? We want them to go into deep breathing or whatever other recovery coping skill that they've practiced and they've learned in therapy without even thinking about it. And this absolutely can be done. You just brought me back to when I was a student and doing DBT skills and I thought of self-soothing and I got to admit the hairs on the back of my neck stood up because that was such a difficult time. Great experience though. Um, as we begin to wrap up, can you talk about some of the opportunities that the Institute offers? I really want to give you a chance to kind of to plug it. Well, sure. Okay. So the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy, I, we have a couple of different options. We will come in and we will deliver a training and certification uh, that is both NADAC and BHAP approved for CEUs. So it is a training course. It's a clinical training course that provides the CEUs and a certification. We address the issues of facilitation, the gaps in current licensing that exist that we've talked about today on this episode. But we also, in addition, you know, we invite your BD reps, your community outreach reps, we invite them to attend the training free of charge because we're really delivering group therapy in a whole new way. And that is what we believe is very, very exciting about this. We know that things haven't changed over the last 50 years. We are now using evidence-based practices from multicultural samples to change that. And we want everyone in your organization to really understand what makes you a differentiator in the space. In addition to that, we will help establish an audit and implementation plan. We have our own package where we will do it for you, or we're happy to work with your clinical director or program director to establish what a supervision and feedback schedule will look like. If you don't have outcomes tracking already, we partner with ERP Health, but we can also recommend others as well, just so we can really understand, is what we're doing working? So Look, the writing's on the wall with measurement-based care. Mm -hmm. It's eventually going to lead into value-based care. Look, we're not, I, I, I acknowledge, we're not for everybody. But if you think that you're going to be around in the next five years, we should probably talk because this is the direction that the industry, that the field is going. 
And, you know, I, I believe we all have the same mission. Let's not only help more patients heal and find recovery, but let's make the job a little bit easier for the our staff as well. Let's show them that, hey, you know, we're inv- we're willing to invest all this money in marketing each month, but we're also willing to invest in our staff, mm-hmm. right? Because the skills that we teach, they don't only help patient outcomes, they help reduce clinical burnout. If a session is going well, it flies by in a snap, in a breeze. It's so much more pleasant to be a part of an effective group than it is oh, the one that's like pulling teeth. And I've been in both ends of that of that aisle. And I, I can just tell you, it's a huge difference. And, uh, and when you talk about if reducing stress and having better skills, that also reduces turnover and saves an organization money. Turnover, sure. we know, is ridiculous in this field. Yeah. Um, and if we can manage that, it's one way we can help manage a little bit with with skills, uh, yeah. making our people better at what they do. I mean, I what I always say is this. I mean, if you don't want to invest in your staff because you're worried they're going to leave in six months, that's really small term thinking. I mean, what if they stay? Then how are you fulfilling your mission? I mean, it, there are there are better ways to deliver training. And I understand that. Well, we have all these options online now that are completely free. Oh, that's true. But don't expect any organizational change by someone who's checking a box because they signed on and turned off their camera and did who knows what. So the the training that the Institute offers is very intensive. It is challenging. I believe that most meaningful growth opportunities are, at least that's my experience in my life, the Cambridge CELTA, the the Walt Disney Company's Management Edge Training, which is their corporate leadership training, and the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Those are the type of workshops where I was like, I was like, oh my goodness, I am being challenged right now and I have to do all this work and it's a little bit stressful at times. But wow, I, when I leave at the end of the day, it's like, I am gonna use that tomorrow. And then I go and use it and it's like, wow, this really works. And so one of the things that we're so proud of is that you know we face resistance at first especially from a lot of the clinicians it's like you're asking me to do something completely different from what i've learned yes but we we will win you over and we do every time if i practice the way i initially learned 30 something years ago i would lose my credentials and be up on ethics charges because what was okay so we have to continually learn because things change as we learn as the field learns um anything you'd like to add as we finish up no, I just uh, I appreciate the time uh, talking with you. I know we had a, a couple other questions that we might have gone over that maybe I was just droning on too long, but uh, happy to do that offline. Um, yeah, just uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity. I hope the clinicians listening can you know take something away from this. If you want to know more, please reach out to me. I'm very active on LinkedIn, Andrew Bort. Uh, you can also contact me via grouptherapycertification.com. And I am happy to talk with anybody, whether it to be, you know, introducing a free CEU workshop for a lunch and learn, or, you know, talking about attending a conference, or even discussing how we can bring the training to your organization. I'm always open. Networking, relationship building is important for me. And, you know, we, we all we all want the same thing at the end of the day. It sounds great. And, and uh, I'll make sure I put your contact information on any materials that we send out. Uh, I want to say thank you for, for spending the time with us. I know it's early where you're at in Texas. And uh, 
but I do appreciate you spending the time. And I really, uh, the more we talk, the more I enjoy our conversation. So I hope everybody else did as well. Yeah, thank you uh, so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice, and I really appreciate everyone who listens. Uh, again, I want to thank Andrew for taking the time to discuss improving group therapy and, and ways that we can improve it. Uh, I hope you all found it useful as well. Please keep listening and tell your colleagues as we continue to bring forward issues that are discussed far less often than they should be. Until next time, 